Last week, we looked at in our time in Hebrews this existential uh, philosophical passage where we looked at uh, what it meant spiritually to live as a Christian. And this week is a little heavier. This is what happens when you walk through text in the Bible in order like this. You go from a passage that gets you uh, to think practically about your life, and then you get to passages like this one that's more of an emotional roller coaster. And so we're going to get highs and we're going to get lows, and there's going to be some things that are going to be challenging here. And so for those of you who have motion sickness, you'll be fine. Um, and so I want to, as I normally do, start with some questions. What makes you uncomfortable? What brings you out of your safe space? And our culture has this aversion to being uncomfortable. We want to suppress all pain and discomfort and even language that makes me feel different than I want to feel. We avoid these things that, that challenge us and in many ways strengthen us. But sadly, when we avoid the things that are difficult, we avoid the things that are painful, we don't learn from them. And they usually lead to more pain and confusion because we haven't dealt with real issues. And sadly, the church in many instances has bought into that. Because there's a desire in our culture to appeal to uh, cultural sensitivities and to focus on the things we really like about the Bible and the things we really want to hold on to God and the things that make us feel warm and fuzzy. But the things that are difficult, things that challenge us and that challenge our cultural sensitivities, we avoid. And so we make a God and a Bible in our own making. I love what St. Augustine said about this uh, 1,600 years ago. If you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. Listen to that again. If you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. That's a real question we have to ask, because is the God that we look at in Scripture, is our Christian life something of our own making, or was it, is it what God's Word says it is? So this morning, there will be no warm and fuzzy. I know you've come to expect warm and fuzzy from me, but it's not going to happen this morning. This entire message will and should make you uncomfortable. Christians and non-Christians alike. But it will also get us to ask honest questions. About what you really trust in. What is your faith? What will you stake your life on? Because if we don't get to the deeper things of God, we will, we will remain to be shallow people. And I'd be doing you a disservice and ultimately a disservice to the Lord if we did not fully engage with everything that Scripture has to teach us. And our text this morning is going to be one of those. So we're still in Hebrews 11. If you turn to Hebrews 11, we're going to begin in chapter 7, or excuse me, verse 17. Hebrews 11, verse 17, we're going to look at 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he had received him back. Let's pray. God, you are holy. You are awesome full of wonder, majesty, and might. 
All of these songs we sung this morning are true. We should lift up you in praise unequivocally, with boldness, with joy. But we still don't scratch the surface to how wise and wonderful you are. And Lord, help us that even when we don't understand, that we would trust you. Even when we don't have all the information, that we would rest in your promises. Rest in your faithfulness to us and to your people throughout the ages. And that this morning, this text would come alive, that it would grab our hearts and make them beat for you. Make them find our joy and our rest in who you are and what you've done. And ultimately put our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I pray that this morning his name would be glorified above all else. I pray that I would not get in the way, that my words would be yours and that the Spirit would speak through me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is probably one of the most challenging and most confusing texts in all of Scripture. And maybe one of the most downright offensive. How could a good God ask a man to sacrifice his son? Isn't that the very God who forbid that in Leviticus? This is what the pagan nations were doing. They were offering their children up as burnt offerings before false gods. And here God, who is saying, don't be like the pagan nations, is doing the same thing. So that also leads to the question that people love to ask. Where is the good God when evil happens? How could God allow these things? How could God, who we believe is sovereign in control of all things... How could this happen? I mean, a lot of you know, it seems like every week there's a new uh, tragedy and massacre in the news. And we don't like to talk about the news here because we want to look at eternal things. But I love the way that um, Pastor Frank Pomeroy of Southern Springs First Baptist in Texas, someone walks in, slaughters half his congregation, including his daughter. How does he respond? When they stick a news camera in his face and hand him a microphone, what does he say? Where was God when this? What is God doing? His response. I don't understand, but my God does. Fighting through the tears, he says, when things like this happen, lean on the Lord, not your own understanding. We're not God. We don't know. That's what a man of faith sounds like. Who knows his God, even when he has to bury his daughter. So let's look at the text itself before we get into Hebrews. Okay, what are we referring to here? We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 22. Many of you may be familiar with this story, but I want to read it. And I want to point out some things before we get into our text in Hebrews this morning. So hold on to Hebrews. We'll be back there in a minute. But turn to Genesis chapter 22. So I'm going to read a a pretty big chunk, but there's there's some important details here that I don't want you to miss. And this is something I want to encourage you to always do. When we look at these texts, look at the larger context. Read the entire narrative itself. See what, what God is doing here, because every word is here on purpose. There are no accidental details. So Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, 
And Abraham said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. I'm going to stop here. It's one of those things we'll just read past. You hear that? On the third day. This must be the longest three days of his life. Abraham waited a hundred years for the son of promise. His only son. And God says, sacrifice him. And I'll show you a place. Oh, three days later, just fast forward. Imagine a father in that position of, I have to sacrifice my son. I don't know what God's doing here, but he's doing something and I have to listen. For three days, this is going through his head. The tension is building here. Verse 5. Then Abraham said to the young man, men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. Again, an important detail. Abraham is specific. I and the boy will go and worship. This is an act of worship to Abraham. He knows he's not going before some pagan God who will actually require his son. But in worship to God, he's being obedient. And what does he say? I and the boy will come again to you. Abraham knew the character of his God. He knew that he wasn't going up there to slaughter his son. That God is amazing. That the God who can give me a son when my wife is 90 and I'm 100 can do do something that I can't imagine. So Abraham was not unaware of who he was following. He was not following blindly. He was following in faith. Verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Imagine that. What do you say to your son on the way up this mountain? He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Another bold, faithful statement by Abraham. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place which God, which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. So do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your only son, your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and beheld. Behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all of the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice.
Why did God have to do this? Couldn't you have thought of some other way to prove Abraham's faith? Let's keep walking through here and hopefully it'll become evident soon. So back in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, with the narrative of Abraham and Isaac in, in context, let's look at our text now. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham. This should get redundant at this point, right? By faith. But we are never to forget that it is done by faith. Faith, not with all the information, but with none of the information. Go up the mountain. Bring your son. Bring wood. Bring a torch. You don't know what's going to happen next. Faith is easy when you have all the information. But when you don't, it's different. If I were to say, can you grab me a bottle of water? Use Jay, for example. I have one. I don't need it. But just, just saying. If you can go out of this aisle, uh, turn right, turn right down there, go into the hallway in the first door on your right, go into the room, turn to the right, in the corner is a box of bottled water. It's easy to do. But if I shut off the lights and I blindfold you, say, come out of this aisle, walk to the right, take 15 steps, turn to the right again, continue to your right, go into the hallway, take another right. That is a whole different experience. Because now you have to trust me. Not just trusting your eyes, not just trusting what you can see, but you have to trust that I actually care about you enough not to walk you into the wall. And that is what faith looks like, because it would feel like that. And that's what faith looks like. Not having all the information, but trusting that the one who is guiding you cares for you. And will not bring any harm to you. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested... This is one of those words that we have a lot of misconceptions about. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about testing in, in trials, but it's not necessarily the way we use it. Uh, we assume that when we go to school, and, and kids, you know this, I'm still pursuing my master's, and I know this. Every time I face a test, I dread it. Tests are not good things. And we find ourselves many times approaching these tests as if we have to prove something to the professor. The test is for me to show them what I can do so that they can give me a good grade. And so we approach this text as if Abraham is doing this for God's sake. That Abraham has to pass a test so that God will know what the condition of his heart is. This is not for God. This is for Abraham. Let me tell you, a test is not for your teacher. It's for you. It's to show how much you've learned. It's to show what you can apply. Tests are to show our true character. That's why we test metals. That's why we test different things to see what they're made out of. And that's what the test was here. For Abraham to put his faith into practice and to see what he was made out of. We're going to look at a couple texts here. So turn one book to the right with me to James. James and 1 Peter we're going to look at just after. Chapter 1. It's going to be very easy. One book over. James chapter 1. How does James begin his letter? Writing to a persecuted church. Writing to a church that has infighting between the rich and the poor. James chapter 1 starting in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds. Now that's crazy talk, isn't it? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The testing of your faith leads to steadfastness, leads to completeness in Christ. It's not just James. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. What does he say? One book over to the right. In this you rejoice, 
Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The testing of our faith results in God's glory and honor, and our faith being genuine before him. Just like gold, as we've talked about so many times, gold has to be tested. The heat has to be turned up for it to be purified. Peter is not using this analogy by accident. This is intentional. Let's look at a practical example of of testing. How do you know that you can trust your car every time you get into it? How do you know that the wheels are not going to fall off? It's not going to spontaneously combust like pintos or whatever. Because they put it through thousands of hours of testing. They slam it into walls. They put it on slick ground. They, they, they drive it over, over ice. It is put through intense testing. Because when you put your life in it, you want it to stand up to that testing. When you're about to face something intense, you want the most intense training as possible. Otherwise, you won't be prepared for what's in front of you. You look at Navy SEALs. For them to do one of the most difficult jobs on the planet. They have to go through the most difficult training on the planet. Because otherwise, when it comes to the pressure, when it comes to the freezing water, when it comes to the gunfire, when it comes to starvation, when it comes to fear, they won't break because they've already experienced all that. Testing, we don't like to be tested. We like to be nice and comfortable. Just give me an A, give me my smiley face, pat me on the back, tell me that I'm good at everything and I'll go along my merry way. That's not what's good for us. That's not what strengthens us. That's not what builds up our faith. And it's easy to love a God who requires your affections for the things you're willing to give up. It'd be easy to worship a God who says, just give up mushrooms and watching Oprah. Like, that'd be easy for me. No problem. But what about a God who requires what's most difficult for you? The things that you love most. God wants me to give up sauces and peppers. (laughs) Or give up my wife. Not necessarily in that order, but... A God who would ask something that that you hold so dear that you don't want to let go. That's a little more difficult. I love what Martin Luther says about that. He says, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. A religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. If it is that easy, it's worth nothing. Don't take my word for it. We're going to look at what Jesus says about this, because Jesus says that following him requires this this degree of self-denial. But it goes against our most basic selfish instincts. How can I not think about how I feel first? What about me? How can I come to some God who wants me to think he's more important than I am? It's a real difficult question, but that's what God requires. It's not just me saying that. Let's look at the words of Jesus himself. Remember uh, what Augustine said earlier. If you pick what you like in the Gospels and excuse what you don't like, then you like yourself and not really the Gospels. Because we love the the sweet and comfortable Jesus. What about the, the Jesus who makes us uncomfortable in our own lives? Look at Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. I'm going to read 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, 
And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Ouch, Jesus, where's the warm and fuzzy? Just to kind of release the tension a little bit. He's not being literal here. Because this is also the same Jesus who said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And all of the law and the prophets are built on that. What Jesus is saying is you love the Lord your God first with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. You should love me so much that the way that you love everyone else looks like hate and pales in comparison. Because if you're not willing to surrender all for me, you're not worthy of me. But he goes on to say this. Whoever does not bear his own cross, verse 27, and, and come to me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he is not able to complete, to, to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he's able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is why people don't follow Jesus and reject the gospel. It's too much. It is too much. You want me to hate the people I love the most? You want me to hate the things about myself that I'm holding on for my very life and my very identity? They've counted the cost and it was too much. You want me to give up all that I have? Everything that I hold dear to me? The answer is yes, if you love those things more than you love him. Because this is where I found myself about 10 years ago. I loved living for my own pleasure. Many of you know my story. But I did everything that feeded my own, that fed my own ego. Lived for my own pleasure. Got everything I, I wanted as a club DJ in Miami. And I've been to church my entire life. Thought I had faith in God. I'd prayed a prayer a million times. But there was always something I was holding on to. I was willing to give up when I was pushed, but I wasn't willing to give up everything. Because there were things I still desired more than God. Over and over and over again in my life. Until October of 2007. Got everything that I wanted. Money and girls and prestige and all those things. And the emptiness set in. But there is nothing here. For the first time in my life, on my knees, eyes full of tears, crying out to God. God, I don't care what you take from me. You take DJing, you can take my family, you can take everything. I don't want to do it without you anymore. And I couldn't honestly say that before. But I had to get to the point where the cost of what I was giving up was not greater than what I was gaining. Because for most of my life, what I was giving up was greater than what I would gain. Because Jesus talks about this as well. Let's look at Mark chapter 10. Verse 26. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is talking to the, to the rich young ruler who's kept all the law. And he comes to him and says... What must I do to be saved? 
She just said, give it all away. And he walked away with a heavy heart because he had a lot. And everyone was astounded. Verse 26. Luke, or excuse me, Mark 10, 26. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who could be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Because the truth of the matter is, if you choose everything over Jesus, you will eventually die and lose both. But if you choose Jesus over everything, you get him plus everything. We saw this with Job. Everything was taken from him. He would not curse God. And God restored to him in double fold. And now Job has a room in his father's house with more riches than he can ever count. But a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing, is worth nothing. So now that we've covered the first couple words, <laughs> by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. This, this word means like it's a, it's a completed action. He offered up Isaac. But wait, Isaac wasn't dead. In his heart, Abraham had already given the, the sacrifice. He had already committed to do it. He was in the very act. His faith was put into practice without the consummation of the sacrifice. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. The relationship between father and son is so important here. Just imagine that fateful walk up the mountain. Think of how much he loved Isaac. Think of how much he loved the Lord. As he raised that knife, he showed who he loved more. Verse 18, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This was a command not just to kill your son, but to kill your entire posterity. Everything that is to come after. He told them, I will make many nations out of your offspring. Now we're going to put it, that offspring on the altar. Does God know what he's asking? How can God promise an offspring and then order me to put that offspring to death? God doesn't contradict himself, but it seems like he's about to. What is Abraham thinking? Sure, he's thinking, God, I don't know what you're doing. But I trust you. Abraham can exercise faith because he knows that God has been faithful to him for the last 110, 120 years. Could he have done this without faith in God? Absolutely not. Continuing in verse 18. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Wait a second. For Isaac was the promised offspring. He's quoting from Genesis 21, 1 through 2. This is a word that can be spoken of in the plural or the singular, but this is the singular form. Through Isaac is your offspring named. So I thought Isaac was the offspring. Well, Paul gives us a little clue into this 
In Galatians 3.16, I'm just going to read one verse. You don't have to turn there if you can't make it. Uh, Galatians 3.16 says this. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. There is a lot more at stake here because this was not just one promised son of Abraham. This was a long line that would eventually lead to the savior of the world. And that offspring, God was protecting at all cost. Abraham couldn't see that, but his faith fulfilled scripture in that. Verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. We talked about this word a couple weeks ago, considered. This is sit down and to meditate, to think on something deeply, to weigh it, to count the cost. He considered that God is able. He considered that God is able. God is able to give sight to the blind. God is able to heal the lepers. God is able to part the Red Sea. God is able to calm the waters. God is able to deliver his people from Exodus and from their sin. God is able to perform miracles and to grant eternal life. Abraham, like Jesus said, looked forward to Jesus' day and saw this. Abraham considered who God was. All of these things were true about God before they even happened, and he considered that God is able. Brings us back to the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that that story we love to read to children when they're facing the fiery furnace, this ancient Babylonian torture chamber. What do they say to Nebuchadnezzar? It's in Daniel 3. We're not going to go there, but they say that our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the fire. And even if he doesn't, we will never serve your gods. Our God is able. The God that we serve is a God of deliverance. He watches for his people. And Abraham knew that as he's walking up the mountain. That he can even raise people from the dead. He can raise his son from the dead. The God, the God who is able to create all things out of nothing. Send his son. To take those of us who wanted nothing to do with God. Who loved ourselves and our own gods and our own images more than we loved him. He sent his son to die for sinners like us. His son more than he loved, the one he loved more than anything else in the world, he sacrificed him for us. Because he loves us. You don't think he can provide a way when it doesn't seem like there's any other way? Because Isaac was as good as dead. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Because he was as good as dead. The knife was going to come down. But it didn't. God spared Abraham's son. The physical offspring. But it didn't, he didn't spare his own son. The spiritual offspring. This whole story has been preparing us for Christ. Not only is Jesus teaching us about this text. But this text is teaching us about Jesus. I want you to walk back and look at some of these, these details. Because with this in our minds, Abraham bring his son up the mountain. What does that teach us about Christ? Because when there was no other way, God provided a sacrificial lamb. The true offspring that would come out of Isaac would take the place of the physical offspring. Let's look at some of these parallels here. 
Isaac and Jesus, both only sons. Both, both the firstborn of many nations, both physically and spiritually. Both were brought up on a mountain to be killed. Both carried their own wood, their own means of sacrifice, their own means of execution. Both obeyed their fathers, even when crying out to their fathers for an answer. And in both, the appropriate sacrifice was offered. Both were ultimately delivered to death, from death. But here's what the difference is. There's another detail we did not talk about in Genesis 22. Genesis 22, Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb. But in the case of Christ, God provided himself as the lamb. God provided for himself a lamb in the case of Abraham. And in the ultimate case, the sacrifice for sin, God provided himself. All that was preparing us to see what Christ had done and to show what faith looks like lived out. Abraham received back his son from the brink. And the father received back his son from the dead. To put him in his right hand. To rule and reign until he comes again. He is coming again. So normally, in the conclusion, we want to look at um, just some practical applications. And we will. But I actually want to conclude with one more text. Why not? So if we're looking at what the Bible is telling us about this, I would be remiss if I did not look at what James says about this. Because James quotes this very text to make an important point. So let's turn over to James. and This is where we're going to uh, end up. What does James have to say about this? Look at James chapter 2. We're not going to get into the theological debate here, uh, but James is talking about faith and works. We know that we are saved by grace through faith due to nothing on our own so that no one can boast. But James is saying that Abraham here is justified by his works. What is James getting at? This is very important because James connects the dots here. And something if we just read over quickly, we we may miss. So James chapter 2, we're going to read uh, 21 through 23. James 2.21 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Listen to the word order here. It's very important. You see, that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Abraham's faith was proven by his actions. It was shown to be genuine because he trusted God. Faith is only shown to be true when it is put to the test. Faith is worthless if it is never tested. And Abraham's faith was tested to the utmost. It was proven to be true. So what's interesting here is that in verse 23 of chapter 2, James is quoting... Genesis 15, we talked about this a few weeks ago. That Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's quoting Genesis 15. He's referencing Genesis 22, where Abraham brings Isaac up the mountain. What's the difference here? 
30 years. So that means Abraham trusted God and was faithful 30 years earlier. And that faith was shown to be true when he brings his son up the mountain. That faith showed that it was actually justifying faith because it was confirmed by his works. James is making a really interesting point here. This is not one day into the next. Abraham was faithful for 30 years. He trusted in God in Genesis 15 and only the promise of the son. He received the son and put his faith into practice when he put his son on the altar. Faith without that, those kind of works is dead. Unless your faith can be put into practice, it's just a belief in nothing. But Abraham was an example of true faith. He was not justified by his actions only, but actions that came out of a true saving faith. And the one who had delivered him out of Ur, delivered him from the Canaanites, delivered him from all of the other kings that he clashes with. By faith in that God. Abraham's faith is confirmed. And he's called a friend of God. And a friend of God, just like friends in real life, they're not just a friend who does only what is easy. Only what's expected of you when it doesn't require anything of you. The friend of God is the one who trusts in God when it makes no earthly sense at all. Because our God is not confined to this earth in our earthly understanding. He doesn't have to answer to us. He doesn't owe us an explanation. But for those who trust in him, put their faith in in him, he's as faithful as he was to Abraham. He's as faithful as he was to Isaac and Jacob. He's as faithful as he was to Jesus to bring him out of the grave. Abraham knew the character and power of that God. God is faithful and steadfast to his people. He has power over death. He can raise someone from the dead. He can provide a way of deliverance from death when there is no other way. I just want to ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that God has power over the grave? Because ultimately, it's it's one place we're all going to be. Death is certain in taxes, which is also true. Do you trust in the God that delivered Isaac from the sacrifice? Do you trust in the God who raised Jesus from the dead? Has he raised you from death to life? If he hasn't, are you willing to stake your life on that fact? Because Abraham was willing to stake his son. The same God who delivered Isaac deliver Jesus can deliver you and for those of us who have trusted in him he has delivered us from sin's dominance over us and one day he will deliver us from sin's presence because the grave cannot hold him and it will not hold us who are in him let's pray Lord sometimes we're just We're just overcome by what you've done for us. We're just overcome by the weight of this. Would we be faithful in that circumstance? Would our faith hold up to testing like that? Most of us have never seen our faith tested in that way. 
Lord, do we believe that you are faithful? Do we believe that you love us? Are we able to love you more than our own lives? Do we believe that those who trust and believe in you have life everlasting and gain not only this life, but riches forevermore in you? Lord, thank you for Abraham. Thank you for that example. But thank you that you are a God who is faithful that he can have faith in. Lord, I just pray that this would sit on our hearts this morning. That it would embolden us. That it would challenge us. That it would convict us. Because we're not here making a Bible of our own making. We're not here making a Jesus of our own making. A God of our own making. You were the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And everything we just read is true about you. And if it's not, we're all wasting our time. But we love you. We praise you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the power of the resurrection. Thank you that by faith we are saved through your grace. Nothing of our own. And let us be people who is able to put that faith into practice, confirming what you have done in us. Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.